Hey guys, welcome to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host, as always, Steve Hall, and today, another special episode, and this time, I think it's probably the people choice of podcast episode, and that is a Q&A with Dr. Mike, always popular, and as ever, a fantastic chat. We cover things like, is the stretch important to feel during exercises? We cover questions relating to not RAR and rep drop-offs. Uh, really great practical information during this podcast. And for those of you who have signed up and are running or soon will be running the Mini Cup, welcome to the Mini Cup movement. And for those of you who didn't manage to get in this time, there definitely future ones going ahead. Make sure you're still on the waiting list and you'll get an email to know when they're kicking about. But for now, let's get into the episode. Cheers. Hi guys, welcome to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host, as always, Steve Hall. And today I have Mike Isratel back on the show for a Q&A. And I know you guys love these and uh, they're always great catching up with Mike. Uh, actually, I know I normally try and do a bit of a what's Mike up to. And I know it wasn't that long ago since you came on where you just finished your mini cut. And I think you've actually been in a bit of a kind of active recovery phase. And now you're back into things, right? Uh, is that how things have moved since? I finished massing. I hit like somewhere between 247 and 250 pounds in the morning for a few days. I felt like absolute crap because there was just so much weight. It's funny because there's pictures of me on Instagram from that time. And I have like literally have veins up my quads and in my abs. They're like, oh, you're lean. You should feel good. Like, nope. I was pushing so much food that I was like, I just want like, I remember we went to, a, it was in Las Vegas, and some friends and I went to a sushi, all you can eat sushi place. We were sitting outside in the heat before we got in and I was like, I'm going to die out here. I'm going to die. And then we went into the sushi place. It was air conditioned, but like there's tons of people in there post COVID, not enough air conditioning. And you know, the kitchen is hot. And then I ended up having like, usually I have like 40 or 50 pieces of sushi. I had like 15 and I was like, I can't do this. I can't eat anymore. And like I made up for it in other ways, uh, drinking mass gainer shakes and stuff. But then I finished that mass phase. And then I just finished two days ago, two weeks of active rest which went super, super well. And now I'm uh, ramping back up as far as training. Over the next five weeks, I'll actually be ramping up auto-regulation style with volumes and loads. And uh, it'll be really great. And then once I'm ramped, I deload. And then I begin a fat loss diet for probably a show in December. So that's very cool. status. I know last prep was your mo well hopefully every new prep is the most successful prep but you got sure. like leaner than i think anyone has ever seen you like you had legit glute striations everything was there my so, first real prep <laughs> i mean my first really successful prep i think everyone you look at everyone hopefully most not hopefully on average most people their first time competing it's never the best and it only gets better and that's that, that's the epitome of what you want as a bodybuilder so that's awesome like you i mean the it must give you some sort of joy. It does for me even to like put your first competition photos versus your last. It's just like your mind just boggles. Like, how is this the same human? <laughs> sure, sure. For me, there's a bit of a bittersweet idea there because most of the reason for the difference is uh, body water fluid management. Okay. Uh, and it's not actually because I dieted harder, figured out I'd die better, salt drugs, you know. So, you know, people were saying for years I didn't know how to get lean. And turns out I was really lean a bunch. I just couldn't show it with water. And this time people would ask me after the show, like, oh my God, you had striated glutes. Like, how did you do it? I was like, well, actually, it was an easier diet than most. And they're like, what? Like the first show I died for, I died for some total of seven months. And there was entire stretches of three or four weeks at a time where I ate 1,000 calories a day Whoa. of only protein and veggies. 
Yeah, uh, I could barely think, I could barely walk. Uh, it was the hardest diet I've ever done. I'd probably never die this hard again, it's kind of pointless. And then I stepped on stage with like, oh, probably 25 pounds of excess body water. Uh, and I just didn't know about estrogen management, didn't know about diuretics, didn't know about androgenic uh, drive for, for body water retention. And I uh, just had no idea. So I did this very stupid thing. I guess the lesson to learn from there is like uh, hire a coach early. I thought I was smarter than everyone. I was going to do it myself. Uh, and it turns out that being smart is nice, but the accumulated wisdom of decades of experience beats intelligence uh, almost every time. So lesson learned. I guess at least credit to you for continuing to go. Like I know that would have been like, it's been a hard for you to like every time's got better, but like to, I can't imagine many people stick to it when they've pushed that hard and still haven't seen the results they were after. So, well, it's funny <laughs> enough, Steve. So, and this is something Jared and I had a conversation about. Most of my diets up until this last one were uh, I would I would diet diet diet. The diet would get harder. The cardio would get more voluminous, and so on and so forth. And I wouldn't look much better for weeks on end because as I lost fat, I increased the amount of androgen I was taking. And the amount of diet fatigue rose, so the amount of body water would rise. It would roughly displace the fat. So what ended up happening was it would just look the same, look the same, look the same. And I'd wake up in the morning after you know peeing several times at night, and in my upper body or something, I would catch a glimpse of like unreal crazy striations and veins. I was like, oh, like I I gotta be sort of lean. And then by the end of the day, I would have like poofy, jiggly love handles full of water. And I was like, okay, and I don't know how much of that was water or fat, and. You know, because everyone, there's that, you know, oh, it's just body water. You don't want to be that guy. Like, I was like, no, I'm still clearly fat. And it was basically like, I think Jared told me, he, he was like, um, he was like, dude, I can't believe how fucking much you push through it. He's like, if, if I didn't get better week to week when I was dieting, I would have quit years ago. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, well, I sure thought about it, but I'm stupid enough to keep going. <laughs> so, because, you know, like at the end of the day, I was like, you know, thermodynamics never misses. Yeah. Thermodynamics never misses. I have to be losing fat because I wasn't losing strength. Uh, and I was at an unbelievable deficit and I was feeling all the effects of the deficit. And I was like, what the fuck's going on? Uh, and then finally, uh, to be completely honest, uh, uh, Brother Chavez uh, recommended a drug called aldactone, which directly attacks the pathway of androgen mediated body water retention. And after like one week on aldactone, I woke up and had completely striated glutes. And I was like, what the fuck? And then um, I like uh, ate, ate a bunch of salt and drank a bunch of water, still on aldactone, because actually I got COVID-19 that weekend, so I couldn't compete. And I, I was like, all right, competition's over. I'm still on aldactone just to see kind of how it would uh, do the fluid dynamics. And I ate, I, you know, ate, uh, it was still clean eating, but like much more salt and much more water. You know, when you're, I've already started restricting salt and water, so the rebound was pretty nasty. And I woke up the next day exactly as strided and, 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 and dry. And I was like, what the fuck? And I was just like, this is total bullshit. This is amazing. It's just like one fucking pill solved all my problems. And I was like, okay, this is, I'm an eight. I feel like such a fucking moron for all these years of bullshit. And uh, I took Broderick Chavez to, to set me straight. So ta-da. I know this is what Jared says is like the like peaking for naturals is so simple because we don't have this body. Like we have a bit of water retention from stress, what have you, but you have a few yeah. good night's sleep, some more carbs, you deload 100%. a bit. It's not a big deal. Whereas like, yeah. I mean, 25 pounds of water is no joke. That's like a, a, a whole contest prep worth of fat. So well, that's, it's, if you weigh 250 pounds, 25 pounds is the equivalent of 10% body fat visually. Steve, that's like you never even started your diet, yeah. which hilariously, if you look at my first show picks, it looks like I never even started my diet. <laughs> like, well, awful. 
I think we're all excited for what you're going to bring this year. I think I also saw Charlie said he was going to compete this season. Is that right? Is he considering that? I think I saw it on his Instagram. Unless something goes terribly wrong, Charlie is going to shock people because Charlie has been rebounding from his show intelligently, of course. Everything's planned. I saw Charlie in person a week ago. And Steve, I got to be honest, Charlie was always, or recently anyway, really jacked. He looks three-dimensional now. His front-to-back thickness doesn't make any sense. He just doesn't look like Charlie. He looks like, you look at him walking in the street, you're like pro bodybuilder. Pro bodybuilder. He doesn't look like a wrestler. He doesn't look like a powerlifter. He has that weird poofiness to his muscles that you're just like, your body ran out of space to put regular muscle in. It's just now adding, it's like a house somebody adds a bunch of extra rooms to, and you're like, that, what, that looks stupid. That's what he looks like. He, I don't want to spoil the surprise, but within the next few weeks, Charlie's going to hit 270 pounds. Uh, and he's pretty lean. He's like 5'10", 5'11". 5'11", yeah. And so he's going to hit 270 in his offseason. And he might even go to 275 before it's all said and done. And remember that with Charlie, we don't use a lot of special sports supplements in the offseason. We ramp them up pretty decently in the contest prep. The last time he did prep, he didn't lose any weight. Now, he's going to lose weight this time, not much. So we're looking for Charlie to step on stage at 250-ish. Wow. uh, Which is like kind of trippy. And and also, we didn't use a couple of tricks to to make him extra lean and extra dry last time. And we will be using them this time. So if I was going to nationals and I was a super heavy, I would be looking at Charlie and being like, God damn it, I hope he fucks this up because... He might not win, but he's going to come in and look so much better than last time. I think he's one of these guys that if he just keeps iterating the same process over and over and stays healthy, which we keep track of a ton, um, he's just kind of destined for a pro card. And it's just, yeah, it's just, he's that guy. So he's got those lines. We saw his last show. He's got classic lines. Yes, yes. What the fuck? And you're like, oh, that guy looks pretty good because he also has like a big head for uh, what's supposed to be his body. And you're like, oh, he's not that big. Like in pictures, he looks whatever. Everyone who ever meets Charlie in real life is like, Jesus Christ. I didn't know you were six feet tall. Like I thought, I don't know. Just, I don't know. It's just not supposed to look that big. And he's enormous. He makes me look super small in real life, which is like one hell of a feat. <laughs> so it's, it's interesting. Charlie is off to a real good thing. And... Jared is about to do the Tijuana Pro, and he Jared's out of body fat. (laughs) He ran out of body fat weeks ago, and none of us are really sure what's going on with his body anymore. He's got weird striations, places you're not supposed to have striations. His, uh, I'll tell you what, he has trouble talking a lot because his skin is so sunken in his face (laughs) that it's pulling his jaw when he talks. (laughs) What the fuck is that? So you know, like you look at his face, you look at like a Jack bodybuilder, you're like, oh, he looks, he looks real good. You look at Jared, and you're like, "Eh, is he gonna be okay? Like. You know, like some, it's a real, like, you know, death camp kind of look. And we'll see if, you know, if he peaks properly, he's going to do some cool shit. And I go, here's a prediction, Jared. I haven't made this to Jared yet. Jared's offseason, next rebound, he's gained so much muscle during this prep. This next offseason rebound, Jared's going to be, mark my words, if he stays healthy, which is probably going to happen, he's going to be like 240 to 250 with abs and veins and striations in like a few months after a show. I don't know if he's going to do the Olympia or not, because it's not much time for the rebound. If he qualifies for the Olympia, fuck, you know, he's going to do the Olympia. But even if he doesn't, if he takes an off season this fall, he's going to look completely insane. And funny thing about Jared is we've been trying to like back off on his leg training uh, because we want him to do 
Well, in classic, he has to fill out his back more. His legs are way bigger than they need to be for classic, but they just keep growing. So if he ever switches to the open, his legs are going to get to this point where he, he, Steve, he does like six work sets for his quads per week. Uh, if he goes to like 10 per week, I don't even know what's going to happen. So it's, uh, and, and I will say um, the dosing he's using for special sports supplements is like what most people in the industry would call comedy or a lie. Most people look at Jared that have been around bodybuilding and you say, oh, he's taking this. They'd be like, he's lying. He's lying. There's no way he's taking this. But, you know, people thought he was taking drugs and he was natural and stepping yeah. on stage at 186. And now he's stepping on stage at 215. And they're like, well, he's on the kitchen sink. Like, just wait till he's on the kitchen sink. You know, like, and then you'd be like, oh, I guess it's like, you know, Kai Green. People accuse Kai Green of being on drugs when he turned pro drug free yeah. at 210 pounds at 5'7". And then, like, he actually started drugs a year later. And the next time he did a pro show, like, Keystone Pro, he was, like, 235. And they were like, okay, must have started growth hormone insulin. And he actually started growth hormone insulin a cycle after that. And the next time he was on stage, he was 265. And they're like, okay, I can believe that he was drug-free at 210. <laughs> I've had, like, uh, this conversation before. It's, a few years ago, this was a big debate where people were saying that um, – you know, what's the natty limit? And they were saying like, yeah. if you're over 200 pounds muscular at any reasonable height, you have to be on drugs. My question back was like, so what do you guys think Big Rami would be if he was drug free? And they're like, wow, you know, like 190 or 200. I'm like, okay. So he's 335 with veins and striations in his off season. You think you can gain that much muscle off steroids and growth? Like you just, you just don't, you just never take it. He's like, I want those guys to start and start pinning and be like, I'm going to get huge. And six months later, they're like, I want to gain five pounds of muscle. Hmm. Am I doing something wrong? Like, no, you're, this is exactly what you should be expecting. Like, I fully believe Big Rami, uh, drug free, could have stepped on stage between 230 and 240 pounds. That that's that's elite genetics. Uh, and uh, you know, people just don't have an appreciation for that. Jared Feather has very, very much elite genetics, and it's super exciting to see what uh, what he's going to get. You know, uh, as a as a person, he's a piece of shit. Everyone knows that already. But uh, as a bodybuilder, I'm just kidding. He's great. But uh, no, but like, it's um, really, really exciting stuff, right? All of that, like trifecta of people, me, Charlie and Jared, I'm nobody to talk about. Good God. I, I, you know, I feel kind of dickless around those guys. <laughs> I feel that way just looking at any of you. So <laughs> I'm just like, there you go. I put there a jumper on. I don't look like I lift. It's just like, <laughs> what's going on here? <laughs> hey, I put on, I, I put on a, what's a jumper? A jumper's like a sweatshirt, t-shirt. What is that? Same thing. Yeah. Yeah, I, when I put one of those, I just look like I'm fat. There's actually uh, one of the powerlifting meme pages made a meme of me with like Homer Simpson, where he looks fat and he takes <laughs> off the t-shirt, but it's just fat shaped muscle. <laughs> like that's me. So anyway, you and I, Steve, we just we just don't have that it factor. I guess. <laughs> that tiny waist, like bolder shoulders, yeah, the bubbly look. I know exactly what you mean, and they do have it. They definitely do have it. So uh, actually, I saw your comment on Jared's Instagram post where you're like. We're trying to make your legs smaller or something along those lines. Like we're pulling back. And I was like, are you joking? They look huge. So this no, we, explains we're serious. it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And they, Steve, did you see how like wide they were uh, in the front, the front, rela front relaxed pose? They have this width to them. It's just like, and there's this like, adductor, adductor vein. They're like, all right. Like, uh, I don't He's even been know what you doing. The, the good girls? <laughs> Bad girls, good girls. <laughs> girls that are intermediately, you know, moralistic as who knows. <laughs> uh jared's been doing a lot of girls you know what i mean hey <laughs> all right enough jokes uh what was i gonna say i had something in, in mind but i think it's left my head so i'm gonna move to the next topic hey so. pascal here i just wanted to take the moment to talk about our membership site inside you'll find a thriving forum an extensive exercise library courses presentations and research reviews 
All I need you to do is hit the link in the description below and sign up. We'll get to Rob Smith's question then, which uh, he has asked, do you differentiate between technique for hypertrophy for strength versus bodybuilding or powerlifting versus bodybuilding, I guess? Steve, can you rephrase that? Uh, so is, is the question being asked, is there a different technique for hypertrophy and a different technique for strength? Or no, is there a different isn't. technique for strength in bodybuilding or strength in powerlifting? So he which, has asked, yeah, do you differentiate for technique for hypertrophy? So it's hypertrophy for both, for strength and for bodybuilding. So the goal is hypertrophy. Yes. Yes. So when you're a powerlifter or a strength athlete, you want your exertion your what's called intent to move, which is how fast you're trying to move the bar concentrically to never be um, just slow. You want it to be pretty much explosive all the time and you want to move the, the bar concentrically as fast as possible. So you want to have what we call maximum intent to move. And the style of execution, even if you're doing hypertrophy for, for strength related, even if it's hypertrophy, but it's for a strength related outcome, then you know, you're going to involve exercises that are using you know, the nominally the same, like you're squatting for both, but your squat is going to incorporate more musculature if you're training it for strength, even if it's for, for hypertrophy, because you want that sort of coordinated central mass of force production. So for example, if you're squatting high bar for hypertrophy, you may put more load on the bar. You may sit back further. Yes, it's still high bar, but you still want to involve the glutes a lot. Still the spinal rectus, your quads get a big hit, but you want to stay close to that side of an integrated high force producing movement that allows you to lift the most weight. So if I'm training guys for hypertrophy and strength training, they may do 455 pounds for four sets of eight. Uh, and they're trying really hard and they're sitting back and deep and they're using as much muscle mass as possible, as long as they're still doing high bar, not leaning over super far. We're not super keen on them doing this kind of super muscle specific targeting technique because hypertrophy just occurs with volume and we still need it to be something that um, that carries over to strength really well. Because as soon as you're done high bar squatting, you go back to low bar, you want the strength to carry over. You don't want to be easy on your glutes. You don't want to be easy on your adductors or your lower back on your bracing. So you treat the high bar squat as just a slightly different variant of the low bar squat. The positioning is different by a little bit, but the intent is really kind of the same. The concentric, you know, as soon as you hit bottom, you go, come back up really fast, really drive into that bar. Whereas for hypertrophy purposes, pure bodybuilding hypertrophy, mind muscle connection is king. So instead of using 455 for sets of eight, you might use 365 for sets of eight. You might slow the eccentric more. You might take more pauses. You, instead of squatting back and down, you squat a, a little bit back and then down and actually forward. You know, Steve, like when you really push your knee forward and you really feel your quads tensing, but there's not a lot of like, you can't lift hardly as much weight like that. It, it's turning every exercise into a little bit more isolation-y than, than it would normally be. And, you know, are you focused on producing a huge amount of concentric force. No, you just need to get the bar back to its upper position. You really ride and milk the eccentric and then come back up using your quads to come back up as opposed to just muscling your way up. So it's quite different. Now, so just, just before anyone takes this in a lot of context, like if you have been lifting up to like five years or even seven years, you just do the good technique, do the exercises. Don't you worry about all that stupid bullshit. My muscle connection hardly matters at all. As you get more advanced, this kind of stuff starts to get more particular. A really good case in point is like Charlie, uh, his last video he posted uh, as of this recording, it was today, he's doing like a set of five in the high bar squat with uh, 505 pounds. And 
the way he's doing it, he's super slow uh, eccentric. He's sitting forward into his quads. He's taking a pause at the bottom. If Charlie switched to regular high bar, like a power lifter would do for accessories, 600 for five in a few weeks would be easy. He's good for, I've seen him do in, uh, was it knee wraps? I think it was knee wraps or sleeves. I think in, in knee wraps, he has done, uh, one, they weren't very tight. Uh, he's done like, I think I saw, saw him do like, 725 or 735 for six or seven reps just as deep um maybe a little bit shallower but like that kind of shit that's like you know so right but he's so much bigger and stronger than he was when he did that i have no doubt that if he did regular powerlifting style high bar he'd be in the 650 plus range for sets of five in the high bar squat no problem who the hell is he getting anything out of 505 it's that meticulous technique the question is why twofold well we want to make sure we're targeting the quads you don't want to be a bodybuilder and be like, hey, man, I hit a bunch of high bar PRs. And someone's like, your quads must be huge. You're like, well, I think my glutes did actually most of the work. Like, yay, slow clap. We weren't trying to do that. The other is systemic fatigue and injury. I mean, injury, like with powerlifting, you got to lift heavy. Yes, that is more injurious. But there's literally just no way around that. Like, you know, it's like saying, look, oh, I really like to race cars, but it's, those cars go fast that I could get in an accident. Like, they're not going to slow down anytime soon. Kind of the whole point. But for bodybuilding, first of all, it reduces injury. And second of all, the systemic fatigue is a world apart. Bodybuilding is about smashing as much volume as you can recover from and still grow from. And if you do all kinds of exercises that not even really training the quads very specifically anymore, but are putting a shitload of axial fatigue and systemic fatigue, Steve, like 650 pounds for sets of five, you will pay a price that's measured in weeks of fatigue, not hours or days. 505 for sets of five for someone that's strong. You know, by the end of the week, you're pretty good to go. And there's your second quad workout and you feel quite fine. So there is a big difference there for the advanced. So as you get very big and very strong, if you're really starting to go towards bodybuilding or really starting to go towards strength sport, keep those differences set in mind. And just at the margins, go a little bit more towards that. So it doesn't mean you have to renorm all your weightlifting or all your weight training. So I'm a bodybuilder now. It's all slow eccentrics and super focused. Just as you go over the months and years more into bodybuilding, just try a little bit more of eccentric control, a little bit more of focus on the muscle, not worrying so much about your concentric speed, just making sure you're really good, getting really good contraction. So like on a, on a bench press, instead of going bah, at the top and really pushing it through, try to push with your pecs. Oh yeah, I'm getting a good contraction. And then slow eccentric deep stretching, big pause, and then push through your pecs. Don't worry about going fast, worry about using the musculature you want. And the research on my muscle connection shows that it does make a difference at the margins. And look, if you can use 300 pounds instead of 320 pounds for the same thing, less fatigue, less chance of injury, the same or more stimulation to the target muscles, you're winning all around. Whereas, like you know, I, I'm, I, I, that, you know, that's how I lift weights. And one of my friends, Joe Sullivan, he's one of the best powerlifters of all time. Like in the hack squat, we're roughly equal as far as how much we can do sets and reps. I'm actually a little bit ahead of him. And, but, but, in, you know, in, in the actual low bar powerlifting squat, he's probably got me by like 300 pounds, <laughs> 250, but it's not even close. We're like the same size. And how the hell did that happen? Well, you know, our quads are roughly the same size, except he's really good at using his quads in an integrated manner with the rest of his body. And I'm just not. So the good news is for me, why would I try to squat? You know, I don't have the genetics he does or probably the work effort or, or willpower to get under such heavy weights. But like, you know, I could, if I change my training squad, you know, probably as much as 700 pounds. This question is why it would just be extra injury risk. And what the hell for? As a matter of fact, Joe is a few months back, 
he was taking a heavy squat out and he like ripped part of his calf off his bone. Steve, his calf, how the fuck you rip your calf squatting? Well, the answer is we have 700 plus pounds in the bar. It's really just like a giant like question mark gamble yeah. as to what the fuck is going to rip because your body's like, what the fuck? So you, you hear like reports of like people who get into car accidents, smash bones, you're not supposed to be able to smash. Like, oh, your pelvis broke. How the fuck do you break your pelvis? Like, well, it's 70 miles an hour. There's no rules anymore. It's you're just like a little puzzle piece going shaking around under 700, 800 pounds. That's what happens. So to me, is a little bit um, sad when bodybuilders uh, will do like, you know, I worked up to 455 on the incline for a set of three. And I'm just like, what are you doing? And then they're like, oh man, I felt a tweak in my pack. Like, oh my God, what is it at those crazy weights and that coordinated movement to try to go as fast as possible on the way up? What is it that you're looking for? There's nothing to find there. As you get bigger and stronger and you're a bodybuilder, you got to make sure to slow down those reps on the eccentric at least. You got to get a good mind muscle connection and make sure that the technique you pick stimulates the targeted muscle and not worried about anything else. And then that way you could stay much safer than you would be and get bigger and bigger muscles the whole time. Fantastic. I really like that. I think that, I mean, it all spits, spits, shouts. I don't know what word, but it's like specificity towards the sport completely. So I, I think I'm right in saying this as well in terms of you wouldn't want to go too high in repetitions probably for powerlifting because it's just quite far away from the specificity of the sport yes so i think the question was on the technique yeah and on the repetitions it's absolutely five sets of five to ten maybe 10 to 12 is the most you'd want to go in most cases in powerlifting because it's plenty enough volume to get you really good growth but it never retrains your nervous system away from using relatively heavy loads like if i'm used to doing sets of five to ten for me to come back and do strength with three to six i mean it's literally like a few weeks later i'm clued in and I'm doing three to six and I'm getting great technique, great everything. Steve, can you imagine doing sets of 15 to 20 on leg extensions and hack squats and then coming back to low bar squats for sets of three? Dude, your first day, your training partners would be like, how much do you want for like a hard set of five? And you're like, I don't know. It's been months. Like, I don't even know. And hey, whatever you did months ago, if you put that on the bar, you're like, dude, this is more than my max right now. Like your nervous system has no idea what to do with it. You forgot all the technique that goes with it. You forgot how to produce a ton of force. Uh, so it's really good for good idea for power lifters to stay closer to that level of specificity. Um, it, it, a, a similar analogy is like, you know, people ask like in, in MMA, should the guys who do mixed martial arts train in the gi, uh, you know, like with the whole the kimono thing that you grab? And the answer is almost certainly not because a bunch of the stuff with the gi is like, you're not going to have a gi on a guy when you're fighting them. And it's just like, oh, I'm going to grip here. Wait, it doesn't exist. Like, what am I learning this for yeah. if not to compete in gi? It's like, it, it, it goes like this really quick. You know, it's, you know, if you have like all pilots can train on a basic Cessna propeller plane and it just teaches the fundamentals of flying. Once you start to want to be an airline pilot, if someone's like, hey, you want to jump in the F-16 fighter and do some loops and it'll make you better at being a pilot, you're like, will it though? And it's going to teach me a lot of stuff about the F-16, but it's not, at some point it's one of these. So, you know, again, if you're just learning how to fly, if you're just getting into lifting, even up to five to seven years into lifting, just do good technique and do a good job. Don't worry about all this crap. And then as you get more advanced, it's, it's kind of going to bring itself to your attention because you're going to have workouts where you're like, I got three extra reps today on high bar squat. I hit a PR, my hips hurt, my spine hurts, my brain hurts. I honestly don't have a quad pump. And then you're going to be like, okay, it's time for me to like relook at this whole technique situation. Someone that did that unbelievably well and improved his technique a ton is, uh, I'm going to do his British name, not how you say his name in this original language, Cuba uh, over there in the yeah, UK. Yeah, yeah. Because, uh, I don't know, he's like probably of Polish ancestry or something or Czechoslovakian. We'd, we'd say Cuba in Russian. But um, 
he there's a huge transformation over the past like two years year and a half where he just like i think one day just showed up and he's like i'm just not doing any more bullshit in the gym i'm just not swinging around lifting crazy heavy weights his loads reduced like crazy his technique improved by a trillion percent and all of a sudden he's like the biggest amount muscular he's ever been and he trains super fucking hard but everything is meticulous you i've never seen i haven't seen him do a single cheat rep in literally a year and a half where he used to just do them all the time and he's preaching all the stuff all the time intent 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 technique 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 and that's exactly what you should be doing at that level of development it's you know if you somehow you know want to get him on here and uh, maybe i can message him and ask him if he wants to be on you could ask him about his journey i don't know what it was that set him on this path but he was like distinctly doing bro shit a year and a half ago and it's literally like over the course of i think one week he was like fuck that he just started doing like really meticulous shit and it i mean he could tell you about how many dividends it's paid for his physique and his fatigue and his injury stuff it's huge he's an advanced guy he's almost as advanced as they get but it's something you don't want to be too early to that party and being like hey i've been training right. six months time to do quad only isolation it's not going to hurt you it's not going to help a lot like other people are going to be like way stronger and bigger than you. you're going to be like why are you why are you pretending you're ronnie coleman you know like you're not you're not over here like isolating the fibers you don't have any fibers but you definitely don't want to be late to that party because being late to that party means you probably got hurt on the way to that party uh and injuries are something that most of them you can walk away from and heal completely and they never bother you again but some fraction of them maybe five to ten percent they'll follow you for the rest of your career and that's nothing you want so yeah i think unfortunately quite often it is the other way around where you get injured and that forces you down that path versus finding it before which is i think an unfortunate thing but not uh well no there is stuff you can do about it like listening to this podcast and i'm, I'm so glad that <laughs> The qu like quality technique all of that to me at least that seems to be something for the past however long like a while has been really preached and it getting further and further into even like the enhanced realm like with cuba and everything which is great because that reaches more people like loads of people follow him uh jp uh part of that kind of crowd J so. jp generally speaking jp's technique yeah he yeah. goes to failure more often and yeah he's grinding it this technique's really good and you won't see him do a whole lot of swinging around because you know, look, he's been down that road yeah, and it probably is. just didn't pay any different. We've all been down that road. You, you could tell JP like, hey, why are you doing machine presses? You should be doing the barbell. And he'd just be like, just shut the, like, get out of my face. The guy's like 300 pounds at like my height. It's insane. Go tell him he's not big enough. You know, like, there's people do this like Ronnie Coleman worship. They're like barbells, powerlifting. That's what you got to do. Do what it takes. And it's like, all right. You know, like Ronnie was one of the genetic elite who managed to not really ever get very hurt. Now it's funny because we didn't think Ronnie was hurt during his time, but he literally has stories of he's like, yeah, like I came in one day and he was on the Joe Rogan podcast. It's like, I tried to yeah. lift 315 pounds and I felt weakness go down my legs. And I was like, oh my God, I can't walk. <laughs> it was like, took him months to rehab that. And then eventually it turned out his back was all fucked up anyway. So, you know, do you want to end up like that? Or do you want to end up more like Jay Cutler, who I've seen numerous occasions and talked to in the gym? He's healthy as an ox. He's like in his mid forties. looks like he looks great. And he's, he is, he, he was much more meticulous about his technique the entire time. He's literally on a podcast saying, I've never gone to failure a single time in my entire career. Not to say failure training is bad. It's just that Jay exhibited a different level of control, a different level of like, am I here to train the muscle or am I here to move weight around? You know, they're the same thing for many, many years. But at some point, especially when you get big and strong, you really start giving a shit about injuries or you don't give a shit about injuries, but you did a little, one little cheat rep on the curl and your bicep goes bing and you're like, ooh, ooh, ooh. You're like, you know, I need to come back next week and not hurt myself. How am I going to do that? A lot of my best technique revelations have come from injuries to like, okay, my shoulder's not feeling so great. I 
still have to train my triceps. How do I train dips in such a way that doesn't extra put pressure on my shoulder? I have to stay more upright. I have to go down slower. I have to go nice and deep to get a big stretch to sort of release the tension. All of a sudden, I did that, and I was prepared to be like, shit, this isn't as good for the tricep, but I'm still recovering from injury. And when I made all those changes, I'm like, oh, my God, this is the best, stress, best tricep pump I've had in months. Well, clearly this isn't wrong. It's actually better on every realm. I just can't use as much external load, so it's not as impressive. And, you know, like at some point you have to ask yourself, if you're really a bodybuilder, are you interested in impressing people at the gym or are you interested in impressing them on the bodybuilding stage? And at some point, those two roads diverge. I think this is actually partly why I'm really a fan of like the auto-regulation kind of tools that you guys at RP have particularly kind of talked about and with like the pump, the disruption. And I don't think people want to get kind of to those maybe too soon where they are like, I don't know, they get into the gym, they're focusing on these elements a little bit too much. They just need to get a bit barely stronger. Understand, you know? Exactly. But when you get to that kind of late intermediate stage going on advanced, I find those to be like, you can like exercise selection, SFR, uh, like set volumes, you can work out like where you need to be via those. Uh, it just they become great teaching tools. Where like where you're saying, should people might be thinking, oh, should I be focusing on doing it that way or this way? And it's like, well, use kind of these autoregulative yes. tools, and they can kind of guide you in that way. That's been for me as a trainee, like really like a I don't want to say game changer, but I have. Uh, yeah. But even when I'm working with clients, like to be asking them these questions, they're like, oh, I've not thought about my training this way much. Yeah this way before yeah. and thought about how the muscles are receiving the lift and everything they yes, just focus like on someone, <laughs> yeah someone's go you could you could someone can make this change very sort of with a lot of trepidation like oh boy here i go improving my technique reducing loads i don't know if i'm just going to turn into a pencil neck idiot you know natty untrained looking asshole because that's all all of us are all of us look and then all of a sudden you know they do this new squat technique and you can just ask themselves like how pumped are my quads relative to when i used to just bang the weight They'd be like, well, actually more pumped how disrupted are my quads? Like, I actually don't know if I can stand up out of this chair and walk out of the gym. I might need to like call the ambulance to get me home. You, have my, you might have 99 problems, but training hard enough for your quads is not one of them. Because like, if you're already so pumped that you can barely move your quads, and if you're already so uh, disrupted that you can't even walk, what is there more to do to your quads? There's no amount of heavy lifting is going to ever, you know, say, well, oh, no, but, but, but you did it wrong. You could have been training harder. Like, really? Like, hard how? It's like saying like, hey, this meal is going to be really filling. And you're so full, you, you physically want to throw up. And someone's like, you know, you're eating wrong. You need to eat more. It's like, eat more? How the fuck can I eat more? Like, there's physically no room in my stomach. So if you have those checkboxes, you don't have to be in this mystery world where you're guessing. Like, ooh, yeah, I guess I'm doing all the stuff Revive Stronger says to do, but I don't know if I'm growing. If you're getting nasty pumps and you're getting a ton of disruption, man, maybe you could be training less and actually progressing because you could be doing too much at that point. But not doing enough is not a question if you're doing things right. In other words, very, very short words. If you do this, this focus on technique and eccentric and positioning that we're talking about, you will know in that session that you're doing the right thing. You don't have to like hold your breath and be like, God, please result in muscle growth. You will know if you've been training your lats some way, it's been working fine, but you're heaving the weight. All of a sudden, if you clean up your technique and you do it right, you're going to be like, oh, oh my God, my lats are, I can't even move my arms back. You'll know, you'll know right away. And you'll be like, why, why the fuck did I ever train in a different way altogether? I think it's particularly saved me just as a slight anecdote, this contest prep, where I know 2017, when I was kind of a bit new to some of these things somewhat, uh, I didn't know it as well as I know it now, of course, my volume, I think I could look back at my volume within my fat loss mesocycles. And I would just like be adding sets here everywhere, like yes. my volume would get mad. And I look at it now and I'm like, 
barely moved from week one. <laughs> like, I'm just like, I, I, I shouldn't be doing more. Uh, and that's that's been a really helped me this cut so far where I'm just like not torturing myself and just like 100%. fucking around in the gym, basically. Right. And it's something that uh, Eric Helms has said very well. And I've expounded upon in uh, a few actually a triple series of YouTube videos on the Renaissance channel is you get your quality of training set first. Once your quality is high, if needed, you mess with how much training you're doing. Yeah. But if you're training poor quality, you're like, hey, yeah, you can do all kinds of more volume and they just pay for it in systemic fatigue. Yeah, fantastic. Cool. We're getting to the next question, which is actually very similar lines to this one. It says, but uh, Manoli Bergen has asked, how important... I know who that is. Oh, you do? Awesome. So yeah. he said, uh, how important is it to feel the stretch on an exercise for hypertrophy? Look, you know, some exercises don't offer much of a stretch, and that's just the limitation of the exercise selection, which isn't to say they're bad, they're just different. Uh, like on a bicep curl with a barbell, it's mechanically almost impossible to feel a stretch at the bottom because your bicep actually stretches back here. It doesn't stretch down here. Uh, but that being said, of the recent accumulation of literature is very, very good for stretch under tension, and the mechanistic re research has been very thoroughly uh, figured out with humans and animals. So it looks like a stretch under load is a very powerful driver of hypertrophy. And we're not 100% sure about that because in science, you don't really get to be 100% sure, but gee whiz, you know, we're really pretty fucking sure about it. And if you integrate this with the idea of um, what we actually see in the gym, like everyone we've ever taken at Renaissance through these YouTube workouts, we teach them how to do stretch under load. And after like one or two sets, they look at us and they're like, I, so, so, something's wrong with my pecs. I don't, know, I don't know what's going on. And like, what's wrong? Like, they're so pumped. I can't move. I, like, this is insane. And I'm only using whatever 30 pounds for flies. It, it, if you try it yourself, the stretch makes such a huge difference. And actually, you could try the inverse. You, Steve, you ever travel uh, and you get to like a hack squat that won't let you bottom out or a chest press that won't let you bottom out? And you're doing, you're doing a set and, you, you know, someone you're with is like, how's that hack squat? You're like, I might as well be <laughs> fucking just using my own body weight at this point. I hate it. It's worse because it hurts my joints a lot. Yeah, yeah. It's, I have to use like 400 kilos and I don't even feel a stretch in my quads. I don't feel like I'm not getting a pump. I'm not getting disrupted. I could just do 10 sets and walk away. So my idea is on, on the exercises that will allow it and making sure to choose the exercises more often that do allow it, stretch under tension is a really, really good thing. Now, here's a couple of caveats. One, it shouldn't hurt the joint. If it hurts the joint, you're like, oh, I love the stretch on these dips, but my shoulders are going to pop out. Don't do that. In other words, make sure the stretch is on the target muscle, not other muscles. So for example, if you do a deep enough fly, at some point, the stretch is on your bicep instead of on your pecs. And then like, well, they're bicep flies. So it's actually kind of like a stiff-legged deadlift or a good morning for your hamstring. Those flies are that for your biceps. Great bicep growth. You'll actually get sore biceps if you do a completely straight on fly, super deep. But you know, never mind. It might not be that great for your shoulders, but certainly not doing much for your pecs. So you have to make sure that the, the stretch is on the target muscle and that the tension produced by the muscle is still high. You don't want to get into a situation where the muscle is so stretched that you literally feel as if you can't connect to it and produce a ton of tension. So if you stretch muscles beyond a certain point, there's a, a feedback system that keeps the muscle safe from, from ripping and keeps them from ripping the joint that says, hey, like if you stretch a muscle beyond this point, the nervous system just isn't going to tell you to contract the muscle very hard. So at that point, you're just kind of like training like a really advanced weighted yoga and, and you're not really a, a bodybuilder anymore, but to a certain point, a very deep stretch, um, the deeper, the better. And there's some muscles that are self-limiting in their stretch. So you don't have to worry about that. So like triceps, there's physically no way to go too deep because your fucking bicep is in the way for quads. Almost always, you just go to complete knee flexion and your butt hits your hamstrings. 
all the way, the further you go, the better. Um, it's not the same, you know, pecs, the pecs have a limit. You can stretch your pecs to such an extent that you lose a ton of force production. Uh, and there's some other muscles that are good examples of that. But generally speaking, on average, going very deep for a stretch pays big dividends. It's also very safe, especially if you do it slow and under control. It's kind of the best of a lot of worlds and it standardizes your technique really well. I have all kinds of really good things to say about it. Awesome. Yeah, I know you can, again, probably more for the intermediate to advanced guys, but you can feel it like I've done it on flies where you feel it. It's like, oh, that's now come off my chest. I'm going to kind of cut ROM a little bit here. So I'm keeping it yep. here. So, uh, and then the only one I was thinking of was uh, on preacher curls. I don't know, like on the bottom there, do you, that's where I'm like, I have to be very careful because I think that's quite a, like a, I've heard of people kind of ripping things within their, I guess the tendons within the elbow there. That's where you have to really control that. Almost all of that is because you're using way too much weight. Ah. Uh, but if the bottom of a preacher curl, because when you lock out your elbows completely, when the bicep shortens, it actually pulls bone into bone, which isn't bad. But in order to overcome, this, the, the fulcrum there is really short for the bicep because it's laying flat. So it's kind of like um, if you close a door by its door handle, you're like, okay, it's easy. It's closing a door try grabbing the door really close to the hinges and closing it. You're like, have to exert a ton of force to get it going. So sometimes if you're using even a decent technique and a decent amount of weight, if you completely lock out your joint with the bicep on the bottom of a preacher curl, it might be a huge amount of force your bicep have to exert at a very stretched position to even get your bone, to, to get your joint to go this at all. Now, as soon as it does this, the bicep gets a huge mechanical advantage and the rest is much easier. But that bottom, at the very least, has to be very well controlled. And if it's really just hurting a ton at the bottom and your elbow joints start hurting because of the bone compression, you got to maybe maybe cut the ROM just a little bit so that you don't come down all the way to full lockout. Maybe you come down to like here. There's a difference here and here and here and here, right? Come down to here and you're fine. Come down to here and it just hurts your your joints a lot uh so that makes good that's sense something. that's a it's a very good point you bring up cool uh let's get to the next question so that's from uh, samuel dahl and he has asked do you think the future of hypertrophy will be showing anything revolutionary that makes hypertrophy training much different than it is from now i think uh the advanced drug scene mostly developed for folks with things like um, you know muscular dystrophy uh, is going to get really insane over the next 10 years to 15 years maybe sooner uh, so this this might be a little bit revelatory for some folks everything is chemical at the end of the day in the human body the only reason that training with weights causes your muscles to grow is because of uh, a series of molecular machines that detect tension and actually activate growth pathways. Now, if you have a drug or a gene therapy that just activates those growth pathways without the tension, your body can't tell the difference. It just grows the same amount of muscle. So I think eventually they'll have such powerful drugs for muscular dystrophy that you're going to be able to take them and get same or more growth for long-term for your body that would result from resistance training. There are some limitations to that. Drugs are very difficult to target to specific muscles because usually they're either oral or injectable and they sort of go systemically to the whole body. So you get like a really, really jacked face. You'll get really jacked abs and core and weird shit and muscles in your, some of the muscles close to your thumb will get really big, so look kind of strange, like a myostatin deficient cow, basically. Yeah. Um, now, there, there may be a situation where you could be on the lower levels of those drugs and then you resistance train half of, as hard as you used to the systemic fatigue is like some kind of joke that 
you only need to deload once every 12 weeks and you get the same or better growth than you did before. So I think on the molecular chemical side, gene therapy side, humble prediction is if, if there's no massive disruption to the global economy, and if the uh, United States, Israeli, because they do a crazy amount of drug development research and Western European uh, drug research doesn't get overly regulated to the point where they just don't approve some projects or human testing. Uh, my humble prediction is when the, when the next 30 or 40 years, and I would say that's a very late timeline, um, people won't really be exercising for muscle growth anymore outside of just pure recreation. I think it'll be pills you take or gene therapies you get to where you just choose how muscular you are. Um, and it just doesn't, nothing else matters. Uh, I honestly think that's probably the case. Um, you know, uh, they, they have gene modifications and drug modifications in mice. They've had this for years uh, where they give the mouse this drug and it actually replicates seemingly every single thing about exercise, aerobic exercise, uh, just a pill. So these mice don't do anything and they don't go on the treadmill and they just sit around and get this drug and then you throw them on the treadmill and they have the same or better endurance, the same or better cardiovascular capacity and the same or better muscular uh, handling and, and fat deposition as mice who've just been running on the treadmill for fucking 12 hours a day. And like, Holy shit. You think about what is it? The mice that run the 12 hour a day mice stimulate certain pathways with that. And the drug mice stimulate the same pathways with that. At the end of the day, there's one, a few central regulators of muscularity or endurance adaptations. As long as you stimulate them somehow, the body doesn't really give a fuck, fuck where that comes from. It's some, in some sense, can't even tell. And then you just get the same, same result. So uh, I, I didn't really answer the question because, you know, I think the question was like, is there anything in hypertrophy training? Uh, so let me try to answer that one. I think there's a potential for some of these uh, muscle stim machines to get better. And some research may support that they're better. So for example, if you have certain muscles, it's really hard for you to activate and get to feeling sore and stuff like that. I think proper placement of these stim machines might actually have a good benefit because they can like contract those muscles uh, with the help of the machine that contracts them much more than you could yourself. That's good for one reason of raw stimulus magnitude could be higher because you're just getting more work done as far as the muscle is concerned. And the other one is actually um, your systemic fatigue may be much lower because you don't have to try hard and that call the psychological fatigue costs a lot. And if you can get the same contractions to the pecs as, you know, by, by pushing 50% with your own mind and 50% with a machine, the systemic fatigue could be very, very different. So potentially that could be a big thing. Now, the problem is most of the folks using these machines now, they wouldn't know proper exercise technique if it, you know, got up and hit them in the dick. And um, for, for a lot of them, it's just a giant waste of time. I'm not sure the machines in their current form actually stimulate the deep musculature that you need to in order to get really good growth. But I think eventually something like that might be uh, much more usable, much more interface user-friendly. So you might have a wireless version where you stick these pads on your biceps and you turn up the juice to a certain extent. And they could actually be feedback designed by where your the machine actually detects when you're contracting your bicep voluntarily. And it, it's not on normally, but it gives a signal boost. So as soon as you go do this, it does the artificial electrical uh, manipulation for you. And all of a sudden you can track your biceps way more than you would in waking life. Slap them on your glutes, slap them on your quads, slap them on whatever muscle is weak. And all of a sudden, whatever kind of movement you're doing is way, way, way more effective. That could be a really, really cool thing. So I think that might be something that uh, develops down the road. So on that, I imagine what we currently have is the pr principles of hypertrophy with effort, 
load, uh, if like intensity, relative intensity, volume, frequency, you don't imagine that's going to revolutionary, like some massive change. Like we've all been doing something wrong or you think that's all going to be pretty much, or maybe it's even guess. unnecessary because we don't sure. fucking give a shit anymore. We've got the, sure. the, the, the gene therapy. Sure. So definitely that is a possibility, but what I would say is my estimate on the revolutionary change is probably low probability. But a really decent marginal change is probably pretty high. So, for example, you know, exercise frequency is a big contentious topic. Uh, you know, how many sessions per week training for biceps maximize your bicep size? I think over the, the next uh, five to ten years, the research on that will become much more fine-tuned to where the recommendations can be much more of, hey, like this is really in this situation for this amount of time, this is the best. Um, and in this situation for this amount of time, this other thing that we used to say, well, works just as well. Actually, it's kind of the wrong answer. Um, you know, it's like it's like if you, you know, dogs will eat any kind of dog food you give them pretty much. But if, if dogs can somehow be upgraded in human intelligence, they could talk. They could tell you a lot more about which food they like and don't like. We just don't know because the, we aren't able to measure it. So maybe if we are able to measure muscular responses at a deeper level, uh, we are able to infer, oh, actually, you know, these frequencies cause these adaptations, which in the short term are the same and in the long term aren't as good. Um, so maybe we'll have more insight like that. I, th I find that very likely to occur because um, right now we, you know, for example, on the RP the muscular guides the recommendations, it's like two to two to five, you know, sessions per week. I think we could probably do better than that. Um, I think we'll learn much more about what the cutoffs are like with uh, loads that are too high, loads that are too low, um, repetition ranges. I think we'll probably see some, maybe some more objective way to measure rest times. Like there may be some way to measure how ready your muscles are to really stimulate hypertrophy again. And you could have a, like maybe put some kind of nanotech pad on your biceps and the pad is you, you go, go, go and it turns blue and then you stop. And when it turns completely bright green again, your muscles are ready enough to, to really recruit their fastest fibers. And, uh, you know, right now it's just kind of guessing we have the whole four factor model, which probably does a really good job. But that nanotech can actually measure the muscle recovery at the level of the molecular machinery. And then when it turns bright green, like your muscles are ready. And you're like, oh, this is awesome because it's completely objective. I don't have to guess anymore. You know, it's like the difference between having a GPS on your phone and having paper and pencil trip mapped out on a map. Like one of them just gets you where you need to go. But gee, you're going to make some mistakes. It's going to take a long time. Whereas the other one is like as precise as it gets. So maybe something like that. Hi guys, Steve here. Just wanted to take a moment of your time to remind you of our online coaching service. At Revive Stronger, we pride ourselves on providing personalized service that will take your physique and knowledge to the next level. If you're interested, check the description and sign up. That's very cool. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I'm just thinking on, on the line of like bodybuilding will just be gone if there's this uh, gene therapy. It feels like like part of the reason I think a lot of us do it is for the like the, the training and we enjoy that and the process i'm like what's that going to replace there's got to be something that uh something there but that's well, well like, i will say yeah. you know so anab anabolics are huge already and yeah. their effects but we still have bodybuilding uh and the thing is all those therapies unless they're very specific to the muscle they you still have to train because you want some muscles to get bigger than others like if you just want to have a big waist and so there's it's kind of been known in bodybuilding for like probably two decades now but if you just want to be really big for whatever genetics allow you just take a crap load of gear, a crap load of insulin, a crap load of growth hormone, and eat a ton, you'll get really big. So the problem is your waist and 
will get big. And then all the muscles that you have will just get genetically as big as they could have relative to each other. So you just, you don't look that great, you know, the balance and symmetry sucks. So then with average genetics, how do you improve your balance and symmetry? We've got to be able to really, really grow some of your muscles, like your shoulders and outer quads and really not grow others like your abs, for example, or your, your, um, your obliques. And like you've taken off your tactical vest there, Steve. So <laughs> the weighted vest, my back's aching. I need it off. I've done my <laughs> <solid>. time today. <laughs> there you go. Your bulletproof vest. So, uh, so basically at the end of the day, um, you know, there's still a huge amount of nuance that you have to play in as the athlete. And there may still be 30 years from now. Um, the, the real other thing that I think is coming, this is a total aside, just, you know, you intellectually curious viewers might want to hear this and let it bump around in their heads for a bit. I think there's a big revolution coming of uh, virtual reality. I think it's been brewing for a while. All the futurists predict that it's going to happen. And I think we're going to be living more and more of our lives in either augmented reality, where it's, for example, you have contact lenses. If you're driving down the road and you're like, I wonder what gas stations are over in that town. And you look at that town and it instantly loads all the gas stations with giant arrows as if they're pointing from the sky. It says, go here. And you go, ooh, you kind of touch the arrow in space and it turns green. And then your self-driving car just goes there, right? So that's augmented reality. And then there's pure virtual reality, which, you know, you sit back in your comfy chair, you close your eyes. And then all of a sudden through weird, you know, at first relatively simple technology and eventually very advanced technology, you'll be living in like, you know, imagine Facebook, but it's three-dimensional when you get to talk to people. Um, social media will be upgraded to such a crazy extent that I think people will be spending more and more time in social media. And just like a video game, you're going to be able to make yourself look like whatever you want. So what your body actually looks like will become incrementally less and less interesting. Uh, so I think that's coming in, in the next 10 to 20 years, maybe even sooner. And, and then maybe sports like bodybuilding, powerlifting will still exist and be super fun, but maybe they won't attract as much attention for the average young person growing up as, as they used to before. Then again, the global population is always increasing. Uh, so maybe they'll still get super popular. Here's, here's one thought, like India and China are growing uh, middle class very rapidly. At some point, their middle class will be as wealthy. In 20 years, India's average income will be higher than the United Kingdom is today. Plus a lot of people are going to want to do all kinds of stuff people in the UK do not like bodybuilding and stuff. So, you know, the Indian bodybuilding scene in 20 years might be this insane thing with millions of people doing it. So there's always that kind of thing, you know, never mind the African bodybuilding scene. I mean, what happens when, you know, in 20 years, Nigeria becomes the same per capita wealth as the United States. Holy shit. I mean, nobody who's not Nigerian is going to be winning anything. It's like the UFC is like half of the current champs are Nigerian. Uh, so that, there's all kinds of really cool stuff that can happen there. But I think eventually everything's going to end up transferring or most things to a, to a digital world. So that's just something to keep an eye on. And this somewhat is on the same lines in terms of you, you had your discussion, uh, actually you had your presentation on RP on veganism, which mm -hmm. has obviously been growing loads. And I imagine that's going to go somewhere in future as well. But I just want to bring it up because I know we discussed it last time and I listened to your debate and then I've watched that video and I just, for me, it was great. So I just want to recommend oh, it to cool. people. Uh, your so thoughts much, outside of bodybuilding always impressed me by how meticulous you are and kind of you think outside the box i think a lot of people put themselves in a box so it's quite nice to have that the kind of um where you are in terms of veganism and thinking about it as a spectrum rather than like you're either vegan or you're absolutely not that was helpful for me yeah. as someone who is conscious conscious of this sort of thing but isn't comfortable going all in for sure and uh thank you so much steve for the kind words and that videos on round science it's like 10 reasons to go vegan a bit of a clickbait title 
Uh, and we do actually talk about 10 reasons, but it's the spectrum. Each one's a spectrum and it's go vegan or not. Um, I just will say one quick, so if you're looking for the shortest summary ever, the biggest argument vegans have is against factory farming. Uh, uh, not just factory farming, but specifically factory farming that is uh, really, really like, uh, you know, causes a lot of suffering. Uh, and if you can reduce the suffering substantially, increase the quality of life for the animals, most of the arguments for veganism, I won't say disappear, but lose a lot of their steam. So if we could have situations where animals would be farmed very, very ethically, slaughtered very ethically, some of the vegans are, I don't know, I don't think they're trolling, they're serious. One guy was like, what is that? What does ethical slaughter even mean? It's like, well, you know, there's two ways to die. One way is you get a gangrene infection in nature and you die over the course of two months of writhing fucking agony and pain. Or you get a lethal injection, which you're happy and everything's going great, and then you just shut off and no one, you know, there is such a thing as ethical slaughter. So if the animals are like, you know, if you have a chicken that runs around for one or two years and as happy as ever out in what it thinks is the wild, and then it just like nanotech just shuts it down and it just collapses and never even feels a thing, you know, actually no money, no suffering occurs. Then chickens, uh, you know, or, you know, cows or whatever in captivity don't face disease, they don't face predation. It's actually a better life for them. Uh, you know, imagine aliens were farming humans for food. There's a few other considerations, but you know, the, the aliens let you live a 200 year long life, just insanely, insanely uh, fulfilling life where you didn't have to worry about money or anything. You just hang out with your friends for 200 years. And then you don't even know you were going to die. You just kind of lapsed out and you know, there's no you to be aware anymore. Can we say that's some kind of ethical disaster? Like, I don't know, man, compared to life and like, you know, Bangladesh right now, it's 50 trillion times better. So it's kind of like, I think vegans are on their strongest foot when they say we really need to reduce animal suffering. And they're on their weakest position when they say any kind of meat consumption is a terrible idea. And, and at that point, there's a lot of nuance there, it could be argued. Yeah, I thought it was interesting to think about the animal's intellect and how I think, at least I'd always, I'd probably done it myself where I'd kind of given an animal human emotions or intelligence yeah, and, and anthropomorphization mm-hmm. yeah and yeah. it's just not there which helped me a lot for sure it was one of the like, one of the things like anticipation like the animals know they're gonna die like do they do they really you know like i don't know like there's lots of humans that are in situations which we know they're gonna die they don't know they're gonna die so it's kind of like you know the, the suffering that occurs from anticipating death is massive and we can really relate to it but if you don't anticipate death there's not a lot of suffering going. You're just going to be bopping on your way around and all of a sudden you're dead. It's very, very different. Still bad. Still killing is bad. Death is bad. It's a very different kind of thing than you know, an animal that like grows up in a wildly uncomfortable situation is in fucking agony its whole life, anticipating its own death and finally dies. Uh, that's way worse. And if we can make farming first such that it does much less of that bad stuff and much more of the much more decent stuff, then we've already had a huge victory and we didn't have to convince everyone to drop meat out of the diet unfortunately vegans have this thing where they you can tell they're all coming from a really great place they're really you know emoting about it they're really emotional about it and what they end up doing is just pissing a lot of people off and if you want to convince people not to be vegan you just take the average emotional 17 year old high school vegan and put them in a room of meat eaters and you'll you'll convince half the room they're never going to go vegan just out of spite because the person's a fucking asshole uh and if you want to convince someone to go vegan maybe a more nuanced approach of like hey like maybe factory farming is kind of gross terrible and a lot of people would be like yeah no it's totally i would I, gladly pay 50 cents or a dollar more per pound of meat to know that the cows had a pretty decent life like, yeah. a lot of people would do yeah. that so awesome time for one more question time for one more cool we'll go with uh, juiced 
Sattler, and he, I guess he, I think it's a he, uh, when I reach my last week in a meso with no RL, I get a rapid decline in the amount of reps I, that I can achieve in subsequent sets uh, of the first exercise and also in the following exercises for the same muscle group. I cannot prolong my rest time between sets because I have to fit my workout within a fixed time frame. I don't have this rep drop-off issue with one RAR. Should I end my meso with one RAR or is this decline in performance okay for hypertrophy? Is this a common problem or person-specific? Super common. Not really a problem. It's actually just bumping into the reality that for, like, failure training causes enormous amounts of systemic and local fatigue, which is why people who train to failure every session, you got to wonder like, gee, you know, you could be doing a lot more volume, a lot higher quality and growing much more if you just didn't go to failure all the time. So this is a great argument against go to failure every week. But if you go to failure in your last week of training, you're deloading next week anyway. So who cares? And because you're going to failure and having that drop off, you're probably still like, you know, getting a, a ton of hypertrophic stimulus. It's just not something that you would sustainably want to go to. And, and here's another problem. So if we knew for a fact that you hit one RIR, we may actually never go to failure. One of the main reasons, at least at RP, we recommend going to failure more or less at the end of every mesocycle for hypertrophy or almost everyone is to shit test yourself to see if you're really not training hard enough. Because you could think on one RIR, really push to failure, you might hit a, a rep you might have four more reps than you did the week before. And you're like, okay, well, I was lying to myself. Then next time you know, and you train a little harder and everything works better. So one of the number one reasons to go to zero RIR or to go to failure is to really know that you're in the right uh, relative effort range to begin with. Um, it's kind of like an automatic resetting process. So if you say, well, I'm always going to stop at one RIR. My next question to you is, how do you know that's one RIR? So I know what RIR feels like totally for the first few months, but then you train, keep training for the first few months and then the second few months and six months later, you're PRing everything, everything's going well, but <clears throat> you know, you do a set of 10 with 350 pounds on the squad. You say, that's one RIR. How do you know for sure? You don't. The answer is you don't. So maybe next week, push it a little further and you get 13 reps and you're like, fuck. All right. Or you get 11 and you're like, oh, see, told you it was one RIR because you can't be too sure. At least every now and again, at least every few mesocycles, you should push things in the last week to failure or zero RIR, we, you know, your last rep is like, <laughs> like, you don't need to go down again. We know you're not coming up. <laughs> You've been training long enough to know that. So uh, I think it's important to push the limits on occasion, if for nothing than a, a detection perspective. Um, and, you know, but to his point, when you go to failure, your, your performance drops off a ton. Uh, yeah, it's a bad thing. It's a bad thing. I would even say that in his case, the total hypertrophic stimulus for that last week going to failure might not be as high. So super advanced. Uh, super advanced. Only do this if you're very advanced. If you don't understand the context for which this applies, if this doesn't make sense when I explain it, please don't try it. Okay? If you understand exactly what I'm saying, by all means, try it. Maybe the first set for this individual, he can, in mean, that last week before deload, he can go to failure to peg those numbers of what's my performance. And then all the sets after, he could do one RIR. Because yeah, that first set will fuck up his second set. But because second set is one RIR, not failure again, that third set might be even more ups or just the same. So you can continue to get really high quality work. That makes sense. So maybe just that first tester set is zero RIR and the rest of them just do a true one RIR because now that you know what zero RIR is, it's not that hard to know what one RIR is and you can keep going. That Again, if you have any questions about how to apply that, don't do it. If it's completely obvious to you why that works, give it a try. Yeah. On a related note, Mike, I think this is the question I mean to ask. It's something that comes up sometimes with uh, clients who are using this same like uh, rep 
beat or in, like basically increase the load by a little bit or beat reps by a little bit each week once you've started off at a point where reps are getting hard so three to four rr mm -hmm. essentially mm -hmm. and sometimes people will see like i don't know they do 100 for 10 and then eight and then the next week they do 105 for like 10 and then like six and then they do like uh, their seed as they get closer to failure like he's kind of describing their reps afterwards will drop off and potentially even the average number will drop in terms of the the kind of if you sum every set and divide it by um, the number of sets is that should you expect as you get closer to failure the knock-on fatigue to the other ones is going to be greater so you're going to see more drop off or the way i've always thought about it is kind of relative because you're maintaining the rar and you're training within mrv you should be able to kind of match reps and increase load and it should just be like 10 8 10 8 10 8 6 10 8 6 and you're just increasing load every week in a, I mean, that's a kind of perfect scenario. I don't know if that question made sense. <laughs> makes makes ton of sense. Okay. The gold, gold, gold standard of is my performance still up and am I at MRV is your first fresh set for that muscle group that day. And at the end of the day, if that's not declining, you're probably okay. And you probably can say you haven't hit MRV. And then the decline in reps after is just a consequence of that fatigue from the first set. Now that brings up another question of, if I go that hard and I start losing reps, let's say I do four sets this week versus four sets last week, but this week I actually got less total volume of work, even though I hit a PR in my first set, the other sets were such a disaster, then actually you do should be aware of that uh, and probably not push too far into that void. So what I would say is if you're starting, even if your first set is still a PR, if you're starting to get notable volume load reductions in the first exercise, like you did a set of 15 in the bent row last week. This week's also 15 in the first one. Last week it was 10, 8, 6. And this one it's 6, 3, 2. Um, technically, because you hit 15 in the first set, maybe you're not at MRV. But now this is so understimulative here that you're probably training so hard that you can't even train enough to stimulate. And it's probably time for you to deload and time for you to pull back and go a little bit easier. So I would say that if you have notable reductions in the first now, the second exercise, whatever, you're tired, it makes sense. It's fine. It's okay for your performance to, to be reduced because you're putting in so much stimulus in the first exercise. But if it's your first exercise, four or five sets, and they, the total volume load is dropped significantly, I would say for most mesocycles, that is not an indicator of progression. That is not an indicator of good recovery. And even if you could somehow muster that first set to still be a PR, I would say uh, it's better to plan to have your sets all sort of hit where they're supposed to hit. Another good good thing with that is as you do more and more weeks of the same exercise, you get so good at that exercise and you get into better shape cardio-wise and everything that if you take the same amount of rest time or you ought to regulate your rest to where you're ready to go again, a lot of times the reps stay elevated because your, your fitness is increasing so fast. And once that's no longer happening, yeah, you should probably stop. Another artifact, another way we see this artifact is when people have distinct timed rests, which I'm against generally, not in every case, but in most cases, because we have to check that four-factor rest model. Like, is the muscle itself recovered? Is your cardiovascular system recovered? Are you ready to go again? Are the synergists good to go again? And that may change in a set of 15 with 225 pounds in a row. And you may need three and a half minutes of rest before you do your next set to really, really fully recover to go again. But, you know, last week or two weeks ago, that same set of 15 and 210 pounds, after two minutes, you might have been ready to go. Uh, and if you have the same exact two minutes rest between every set, well, the sets get harder as you go. And two minutes is, is less and less and less. So all of a sudden you're in a position where you're like, oh shit, it's two minutes, but I'm going to only be able to do five reps here. I did eight last week. 
will take more time to rest. And I know he said in the in the thing he can't rest any yeah. longer. Then 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 for him, he's reaching to a point where if your volume load is significantly reduced, it's time to deload and and, and cut out. Perfect. Awesome. Mike, thank you so much. Uh, I think everyone always enjoys these tons. So uh, I want to say a massive thank you and thank you all for listening. Have you got anything in the pipeline at RP? I know generally just loads of great content over on YouTube, uh, but I don't know if there's anything in the pipeline that you can talk about. Top secret stuff, but it's coming. And when we're when it's sufficiently well-developed, we'll reveal it. Um, always, always working on stuff. I will say, I just want to give a shout out to one of my friends in the industry. Menno Henselmans has a new book. He didn't actually message me anything about this. He never I mentioned this. it. I just follow him on Instagram. And he's a new book. It's highly recommended. Everything Menno puts out is worth a look. And also, I would just say, like, if you're on Instagram, follow Menno Henselmans on Instagram because he posts a bunch of scientific um, uh, reviews and a bunch of comments on single studies that are just really, really like, if you want to take your uh, analytical abilities and your deep understanding of training science to that next level, uh, Menno's a guy to follow because, like, you could get really great recommendations from following a bunch of sources, myself and Steve, for example. But if you want that next level of like, oh, but have you considered this? And you're like, fuck, I never even thought about that part of training. Menno's the guy thinking about that. There's just a few guys in the field that are really at that next level cost. Some of our stuff, you and I, Steve, we definitely reach into that. But then we, we broadcast to a slightly more general audience. So it's not every time you get that more advanced stuff. But folks like Menno Hanselman's, um, Eric Trexler, Greg Knuckles, depending on which way he's going because he does a lot of gen pop stuff at times eric helms and there's many other people i can name but those are the guys you want to follow to really 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 bend your brain for you to make you think at a deeper level because then you will be able to innovate first of all and second of all you'll have such a deep understanding that you'll be able to develop really deep principles and flexibility in your thinking to help your own clients and help yourself because if you know the deep undercurrent of what's going on uh you can solve unique problems on principles but if you just know how to kind of, kind of do it the right way, but then your unique case shows up and you're like, I don't know how to make sense of this. If you don't understand the deep mechanisms, good luck. You just have to hire a coach to tell you what to do or read five books at the same time to explain it. I think guys like Menno are really worth the read. If you consider yourself an advanced thinker, I, I read all of this stuff. I read all of uh, everything advanced that Helms, Trexler, Knuckles, and Menno put out and a few other guys. I read as much of it as I can. James Krieger is another one where a lot of the stuff he does is for gen pop, but then he gets really nitty gritty in his research review. Those guys are really the people you should be looking at because they probably don't have a ton to offer as far as like revolutionary shit of like, oh, I can't believe you didn't know this. Uh, you know, it's not going to put five pounds of muscle on your body in five months, but it will over time be able to make you a better coach for yourself. And especially if you train clients, it'll make you way better coach because you'll understand at a much deeper level. And when new stuff comes up and people are like, hey, what about this new training style? you'll be able to analyze it on the principles and be like, oh, that's actually really good or, oh, that's good in this context. Or you can be like, this is a total waste of time because it contradicts everything we know at a deep level. Whereas if you're only surface level understanding, you're going to look at it and be like, ah, seems like it could work. But if you knew more, you would realize that it's a really stupid idea. Um, funny enough, Menno had a really good post on a study about intermittent fasting uh, that I shared a few days ago. Uh, and he, uh, man, you know, like if you don't follow Menno, you could be out there doing intermittent fasting and think this is the greatest thing ever. You follow him for a while and you're like, Ooh, yeah. In some contexts it's good. And some, it's a really bad idea. And you wouldn't know the context unless you were following guys like that. Cause I think a lot of folks who would read some of his stuff or Greg Knuckles stuff at first, they'd be like, Jesus nerd Christ, <laughs> the fuck am I reading of stupid formulas and symbols and references and it's dumb as shit. Just tell me how to train. That's good enough. Is if, if you don't like it, that's cool. But if you want that next level, those are the guys to follow. 
I can definitely I started repping it on my own RP shit. <laughs> That's all right. Uh, I think uh, hopefully everyone listening to this is already over and following you. And I hope, and I think the majority of them will be following those guys as well, but I can definitely second all those recommendations. Uh, so that's fantastic. Guys, again, thank you for listening. Uh, thank you, Mike. And we'll talk to you soon. Take care. So I'm Steve Hall, founder of Revive Stronger and a coach of Revive Stronger. My name is Pascal Floor. I'm the co-owner of Revive Stronger and also a coach, of course. Revive Stronger has probably been going solidly for three years, probably roughly about three years. Revive Stronger, to me, it is becoming kind of my child, my foster child. It's the gathering and getting together of like-minded people. We've been expanding the coaching team, which is helping us help more people. Uh, but each coach can only help a certain number of people. Right now, it's all over the place. We have YouTube, we have Facebook, we have Instagram, but there isn't that community aspect behind that. And so the next step for us is developing a membership site. So basically, we want to create a family and a community that is then benefiting from another. A really cool community for people within our little niche is going to be a website. They will get early access to our podcast. You can access us, ask us questions, the community aspect. We have a forum there. You can ask questions, but also you can you can lock your journey. There's also going to be courses on there, courses, presentations on different topics, discount of past seminar footage. We will log our journey as well. We'll start vlogging. We're going to have documentaries, our entire athletic journey. Furthermore, they get access to an exercise video library. The exercises that we love for hypertrophy and maximizing hypertrophy, we're going to go through those in depth, telling you how to execute them. We kept them concise and also mobile friendly so that you can watch them in between your sets. I'm super excited to grow this community. The amount of value that we're going to be delivering is huge. And I'd love you to be part of it. You will get so much out of that. I'll see you inside.